Hello and welcome to this week's Countryside Podcast with Kiri Kermode and myself, Simon Clark. And it sounds like there's going to be some positive news coming out of the Isle of Man meat plant with the uh, chairman, Tim Baker, uh, giving me some news on this week's programme. And it's very welcomed as well, Simon. And it's always nice to have some positivity and it gives you that drive back home on the farms to produce the quality goods that these people can now go ahead and sell. Yes, and uh, of course that route uh, off the Isle of Man that... um, Maybe it's been lacking in the past, so hopefully uh, we get the full details with Tim on that. Uh, also, you've been talking to a lady about a, a relatively new charity on the island, Curry. Yes, the Manx Wild Bird Aid of Castletown with their Barbara Glassie Cole. And what a wonderful woman she is there too, with a back garden full of all these various birds and species and, and uh, the lovely Sally Swan that they rescued from Castletown. And it was great to hear her story and how they, they're expanding and needing help and more volunteers to get involved with that. And what are you doing in July? <laughs> um, well, it's Tinmal Day. <laughs> it is. Well, the Isle of Man uh, are hoping to get a team together to take part in the World Sheep Shearing Championships, uh, which will be held this year in France uh, in July. And the Isle of Man have been over-representing in, in the past in, in Ireland and as far away as New Zealand as well, which would have been a wonderful experience for them. And James Radcliffe, who's one of the organisers of events, sheep shearing events on and off the island, uh, tells me uh, about uh, the events that's going to be happening and hopefully uh, their recruitment plan to get a team to head over to France to take part, represent the Isle of Man. It's a privilege to always represent mm. the Isle of Man, isn't it, Simon? And this is a great opportunity for some of them young farmers that are, that are quite able to share and um, just a little bit of backing and support, and I'm sure they'll ship themselves over to France for that great competition. Yeah. All right, that's all in this week's Countryside. Here it is. <laughs> Mayor Michael MHK and chairman of the Isle of Man Meats is Tim Baker. And uh, I got a chat with him and started by putting it to him that finally some fantastic news for producers and the Isle of Man meat plant. Absolutely, yes. Really delighted to uh, now be able to announce the uh, strategic partnership that uh, Isle of Man Meats has entered into with, uh, with Northgate Foods, who are uh, uh, an £18 million turnover uh, company uh, based in... In, in Suffolk, in, in East Anglia, specialists in uh, uh, meat broken, and um, we've appointed them as our first strategic partner, which is something that uh, we had a very clear intention to do when, when uh, we moved to the new structure around uh, the meat plant in, uh, in fact, exactly um, a year ago now. And um, we, we've been working hard behind the scenes to try and find that right relationship and to get the business in a place where it was ready to um, take the next step with a, with a, with a partner. And uh, we've now done that. We've uh, formally signed the agreement and uh, Northgate Foods are out there representing us in the, in the UK, opening up uh, new accounts and routes to market for us. Now, Northgate Foods, as you mentioned, I mean, what is their line? You mentioned meats, all types? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, they, uh, I mean, they, they separately have a, a fish arm as well, but uh, the, the part that uh, is relevant to us is uh, uh, traditional red meat, so, you know, beef, lamb and, uh, and, and pork, and uh, they are very established in the, in the, in the UK marketplace. Um, and obviously we've got the opportunity of, Leveraging their, their their customer base, their contacts, their network, and um, I really do think this is a big a big step forward for us as a business. How has this come about then? Because we've had sort of plans before where we've been trying to sell it and export it away, and and it's sort of been a bit static, I suppose, uh, in in the 
producer's eyes. Yes, absolutely. And um, we've uh, we, we've been looking for you know who the right organisation to uh, to partner with us was. And um, even even before we we changed the uh, the company structure uh, just over twelve months ago, we uh, we knew that we needed to do something different because simply if we just carried on the way that we were, then uh, how were we going to deliver a different outcome? We had obviously uh, an individual, Miles McPherson, who was. Uh, uh, selling in 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 uh, in the UK, but um, we were having fairly limited success, to be honest. And we 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 knew we needed to to align ourselves with a bigger organisation who had relationships with major customers uh, and processes across all the all the different markets, whether it be retail or wholesale or hospitality. Um, we looked at uh, some of the big uh, global pr- processes who uh, uh, would have been far too big for us, um, and. Um, you know, we had conversations with some smaller, very regional people, and again, they perhaps were uh, were, were too small. And uh, with with Northgate, uh, that that emerged. They uh, were aware of the uh, of, of of the island, and in fact, um, Phil Woodfield from Northgate came over to the recent um, stock judging that the young farmers did at the meat plant, and uh, obviously, that was part. He was over here as part of this relationship at the time, but uh, um, we. We've had lots of conversations. The team have been over to the UK and met uh, met with the Northgate people. Uh, Phil Woodfield came over with uh, his uh, board directors and uh, met met here on the island. And uh, we then um, had discussions and and, and agreed a, a way of working between us in commercial terms. And uh, we were able to announce the formal uh, agreement at uh, the IFE exhibition at Lon- in London um, a week last Sunday. So. The Northgate would have access, maybe, to sell to certain supermarkets in the UK and across Europe, maybe. Has it go that far? They they, they do have um, customers out, outside the UK, yes, and um, we, we we're going to look at, at those opportunities as well. But the the bread and butter business is is, is is the UK, and they they have a range of customers across retail, hospitality, and 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 wholesale, and um, we, we we're looking to them to get Manx. Uh, Manx meat into uh, all of those different uh, different sectors, and the the thing that's really exciting for me is they uh, they recognise the value of Manx uh, meat. So, you know, w- th- there are characteristics of uh, what we produce on the island that that we know, but others perhaps haven't appreciated in the past. Immediately, they got the quality, they got the low food miles, the high uh, health status of our animals, the uh, uh, low intensive nature of most of the most of the production here and and the farm to fork traceability that we have and and that's very much the way that uh, the consumer is, uh, is 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 looking to go so uh, they see a big opportunity for them we see a big opportunity for us in in just vastly expanding our our reach uh, far more than you know having one or two or three salespeople. it's a, it's a whole network um, so it's something we couldn't have built organically. We had to partner with somebody else. And the really important thing is they only earn money if they're delivering for us. So they're not going to, you can't allow them to, it's not in their best interest just to lie back and get some money from the other man then. Not at all, no. And, and, and I know, um, just even from a conversation yesterday with, with Full Woodfield, who's heading the relationship up, I mean, he was, uh, he was in a customer at half four yesterday morning, you know, so it's that kind of work ethic, it's that kind of drive that we that, that we absolutely need to support the work that's been going on in in the uh, meat plant and in the wider sector and uh, I just think that this transforms our 
our opportunity now and uh, it, it is very early days um you know we're, we're literally in week one of the relationship um so we've we've got to see it see it delivered but um we we're, we're going to be staying very very close and and they're going to be reporting back on a a daily and a weekly basis um back into Alman meets so that it, it is a seamless effectively they're an extension of the of the business into the into the UK and uh, very much working together to actually harvest those those opportunities. Uh, it'd be, be easier dealing with just one group than several supermarket chains, that's for sure, wouldn't it? Uh, ab- absolutely, and um, you, you know, you, you try and open up new customer relationships. It takes it takes an awfully long time. You you have to spend money and and time to to build those. Now straight away we have access to the, to, to their customer base and. Uh, you know they they will be looking to to promote our our product in there and lots of joint um, collaborative initiatives so promotional activity the branding which of course you've seen us introduce over the last uh, six or nine months um, and um, building on the operational improvements we've had in the plant so that there is a more consistent um, product coming out of the out of the plant how long is the contract at the moment well the intention is it's an ongoing one right. but um you know if it, if it isn't working then we'll then we'll stop it simple as that oh there's um, nothing in writing to say this this has to be for three years or anything like that at the moment no because if it's not working for us we need to have the ability to uh to either add new partners on or, or or to stop the relationship and equally if it's not working for them then they're not going to be earning money out of it so you know we it's a very pragmatic it, there is a written agreement between us the, the terms are very clear as to what both parties have to have to do but you know there's no point tying people's hands into a relationship if it isn't working both ways then it's not going to it's not going to be a success what about the farmers of the Isle of Man or the meat producers then I mean they've struggled and it's been common knowledge that they've got lambs cattle ready to go into the meat plant and I oh know we can't take them because we've got no outlet Yes, I mean we've the the big difference between um, how the new structure of Alma Meats over the last twelve months has operated compared to when the FMA were running it was that we were very much driven by the market and we would only bring in animals um, that we believed we could sell, um, whereas the FMA was obligated to take every producer's um, animals, however they were presented and whenever they were presented. So we've become market led and. That's had to drive a number of changes in terms of the way people book stock in, et cetera, et cetera, um, into the business. And that's been a change for people. And, you know, some people have adapted to that really well and understood the reasons for it and, and, and others haven't. But it's like any business, you've got to have an effective supply chain. We need to be able to say to our customers through Northgate that we've got availability, that we can we can predict when we bring in um, animals through the plant and... and, and uh, uh, so that they can place forward orders, etc. Um, and um, we've we've only been able to bring animals in that that we've had a sales uh, opportunity for. This single step has the ability to transform that for us. Because it's sort of reverses it in a way, doesn't it? Yes, it's pulling. It, it's it's going to pull stock through. And it's going to, I think, do do two big two big things. One is it's going to increase our volumes, and we know that yes, Alma Meats grew its volumes last year, but we know that 
that wasn't anything like the um, level that farmers could produce for and there was still a lot of live shipping going on um, because we couldn't take it in or because the um, the, the, the booking in period was too long. Um, so we're opening up volume opportunities and I believe we're also opening up opportunities to improve our, our selling prices as well because we're able to um, see it more as a, as a premium product and, and articulate that to the end customer as opposed to simply having to sell meat through into the UK to get rid of it effectively as, uh, as has been happening in the past. So I think that this is going to change the game for, for, for farmers and people need to understand that Alma Meats is, has to um, have a financial uh, dimension to its performance because it's, it's using public money. But you know the farming community is a massive stakeholder in this, and uh, when we're making decisions, we're looking at it from both a financial lens and what does it do to the farming, uh, the farming community, and what does it do to the food sector uh, and the hospitality sector on the, on, the, on the Isle of Man as well, um, and trying to balance all those conflicting conflicting pressures. But in this strategic partner was essential. I believe we've backed the right outfit here. Time will tell, you know, how, how much impact that has. Um, but I do think it's going to significantly enhance the opportunities for Manx farmers. But of course, Tim, you you, you will be um, getting together, I suppose, and, and finding out what, what people are thinking about this ideas, will you? We, we, we will, yes. I mean, I'm very conscious that uh, whilst we have a, a weekly communication that comes out to uh, registered producers in by, by email, um, we've we've not actually gathered together with, with the industry um, for, for quite some time. I know there was a uh, a meeting at Bemahig that the DEFA put on around the uh, uh, agricultural uh, support scheme consultation. But as Alaman meets, we we want to uh, um, get together with uh, producers and interested parties, and uh, we're going to be holding a, a meeting uh, in the middle of May, uh, an evening once um, people have got a bit more time, perhaps some of the lambing out of the way, and um, just uh, to explain a bit more about what we're doing, talk about the progress that's being made and, and, and uh, how we see how we see the future. Chairman of Isle of Man Meats and MHK, Tim Baker, with some fabulous news uh, for Manx producers and the Isle of Man meat plants with uh, that deal. Um, of course, uh, with the, should take a bit of pressure off, hopefully, you know, putting the onus on somebody else to to sell the Isle of Man meats under the wonderful brand and that it, it, it's got and the name it's got. Oh, certainly, Simon. And it's always been the issue that they're not doing enough marketing or they're not doing enough of this, that, the other. But in the last 18 months or so, they have been going in the right direction, steady away. And now hopefully this will up the throughput coming through the meat plant and, and maybe lessen that stagger time that people are, are always talking about. But uh, hopefully very positive news and, and a very, very welcome to the farming community. Yes, and there's been a lot of hard work, uh, obviously, to go into this deal and uh, just uh, hope this can be a, a real successful venture for the Isle of Man on a sort of commercial basis, all of that. And uh, one such thing that certainly isn't commercial is some of the charities on the Isle of Man, Kiri. That's right, a, a new or a very young charity that's just been set up, the Manx Wild Bird Aid, uh, based in Castletown, all ran by volunteers. Um, I popped along to see Barbara Glassy Cole, see what she has to say about her new charity. Barbara, it's lovely to come here today to the, the Manx Wild Bird Aid. Now, where did it all start out? I, I know the garden is full of beautiful birds now, but once upon a time? Once upon a time, it was just an aviary um, with a few hens, and I think because I had an aviary of cockatiels and canaries, 
everybody thought that you could look after every other bird. <laughs> so the first one I was ever given was a little moorhen that a, a seagull dropped outside and it must have been a few days old with the biggest feet you've ever seen. <laughs> and um, that was my first husband had not long died and it gave me focus at that point in time to actually look after something else. Had you always enjoyed keeping birds? You know, was it something that animals was close to your heart or was it something new? <laughs> birds were something new when I moved into this house and I started off with um, battery hens when, when you could rescue them before they went to the Chinese restaurant. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. But it really has grown, Barbara. The scale that you are now, people bring birds all through the year to you. And last year, when we had the drought and the beast from the east, you were inundated. We all together last year, we had 842 birds, of which there was 80 different species. It's coming into a busy season again now, Barbara, like you say. So there's always scope for rehabbers, people to come and help you, volunteers. They're very, very important, aren't they? The whole, the whole charity is based on volunteers. Nobody gets any expenses or any, any funding at all. Everybody gives of their time, their vehicle... Everything is for nothing. Yeah. So the only the money we spend is either on veterinary medicine uh, bills where the vets themselves do not charge for looking at the birds, but once it needs X-rays doing or injections or blood taking or things like that, then then we have to pay the bills um, because we can't expect them to work for nothing either. And one such case just recently, Barbara, was the swan from Castletown. That took a lot of veterinary aid and yourselves. A lot of time has gone into saving Sally the swan. Yes, Sally, she, she'd been on the side in Castletown for two days. No water, no food. She'd actually lay there. And when I picked her up, she was too weak to pick her head up, lift her head up. So I had to bring her home and feed her rehydration fluid which with a swan meant a lamb's feeding tube down her throat. And I did that for five hours, you know, for up to five hours until, I, until she was rehydrated. It was marvellous to actually see her lift her head yeah. and then start to drink by herself. That's when you knew you turned the corner with that. We knew then... We'd done it when the next day we went in the shed and she trashed it. <laughs> so so why do you think, Barbara, that she got in such a low state? I know I believe you read articles on the internet saying that we shouldn't feed the birds, the ducks and swans, such like, with, with bread. You know, are people taking this advice and not actually providing food for the in the inner harbours? Or... There's been a lot about the bread. Um, and, like, for hundreds of years, the swans and, and ducks have all been fed on the bread. But the problem really is stemmed from the ponds, where the water is more stagnant and the bread would fall to the bottom if, it's, if there's too much given and it becomes toxic. Right, I see. So, But in, in a free-flowing river or, or beachside or harbourside like Castletown, it wouldn't be a problem to feed the ducks and, and the, the swans that are there then? No, it's, um, we, we particularly need them.
The aim of the charity is to help sick, orphaned and injured birds and then release them back into the wild. Everything that's given is going to the birds, yeah. not to electricity or anything else. There's no overhead costs like that. It's aviary building, vet bills, food. And like we say, it is a young charity, so it is all greatly appreciated. And, and someday when you go out the porch and you find someone's left a bag of bird seed, no name on it, and they're just happy to donate privately. It's great when you find the bags of bird seed. It's a little bit off-putting when you find the birds that have been left on your step or on your fridge or wherever. You would be really surprised at what turns up, what's just there in a box or... <laughs> But you would never turn them away, Barbara. You'd do your best to look after them. It's unbelievable, yes. Don't matter what time. Well, we try not to encourage people to phone us up at midnight, though it happens, or quarter to five in the morning when they found a pigeon in a bin. So, you oh, know, wow. So you could probably write a book on what you've had to come here today come through to the sanctuary doors over the last few years. Now, where did it all start out? I know the garden is full of beautiful birds now, but once upon a time... Once upon a time, it was just an aviary um, with a few hens. And I think because I had an aviary of cockatiels and canaries, everybody thought that you could look after every other bird. <laughs> so the first one I was ever given was a little moorhen that a, a seagull dropped outside. And it must have been a few days old with the biggest feet you've ever seen. <laughs> and um, that was my first husband had not long died and it gave me focus at that point in time to actually look after something else um, after losing a husband who was totally blind and I'd been looking uh, or, or with him for all those years you know as his support. Had you always enjoyed keeping birds? You know, was it something that animals was close to your heart or was it something new? <laughs> birds were something new when I moved into this house and I started off with um, battery hens when when you could rescue them before they went to the Chinese restaurant. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yeah. But it really has grown, Barbara. The scale that you are now, people bring birds all through the year to you. And last year when we had the drought and the beast from the east, you were inundated. We all together last year, we had 842 birds, of which there was 80 different species. So it's not like there was 842 birds, of which 500 were seagulls and, <laughs> you know, the other yeah. 200. There was 80 different species and the seabirds, um, the most of them was 180 were seagulls, followed by sparrows, I think it was after that. We have all our figures down of everything and we know when the birds are expected to come in. Yeah. So in the winter now, it's normally um, sick and injured birds. There's, yeah. The only babies there are in winter are pigeons. Pigeons, mm. they, they breed all year. Yeah. So everybody else, everything stops. And we expect the first lot of birds to be blackbirds, thrushes, sparrows, and that's going to be may and robins yeah. so early may um that's going to be the first lot of babies that we're going to start getting orphans that's going to be because people are going to get the hedge cutters out and that's where they they're the ground feeders so they're the ones that are going to be 
be off and first disturbing their nests yeah. or the cats might find them or what have you. And with living in Castletown, Barbara, you mentioned about the pigeons. You know, some people don't particularly like them and they need methods of control of numbers. They live in the castle. It's a lovely spectacle to see and they've lived there for generations. How do they go about looking after the numbers? Um, in the past, I think it's always been sort of done silently, looked after the numbers silently, where they might call them. Um, but it's been found that culling pigeons doesn't actually help because they just they just think there's we, we'll have more babies, so it ends up they have more and more. Mm-hmm. So I think it's definitely that recommend the best thing to do is actually, when they're nesting, swap their nests with dummy eggs. Yeah, yeah. So that will definitely help, won't it, in, in the numbers. And it is lovely, Barbara, when, when somebody finds a baby, whether it's a pigeon or a seagull, it, the little fluffy, cute things, you can't walk by them. And I know you are up round the clock trying to rear these, get them the best quality of life, at a beginning of life. It must be so satisfying to see them take off into the garden or into the aviary and, and go on to live a normal life. Um, yes, you cannot... Once you're doing this job, you cannot turn any bird away. Lots of people don't like gulls, but you can't say, you know, um, we'll we'll not bother with that one, it's a gull, or we'll not bother with that one because it's a pigeon and there's tons of them. Um, when you're presented with a baby or, or a, something that's actually injured badly, you look after them yeah. or sick. And last year, with the drought we did touch on earlier, the blisters on the baby seagull's feet, it caused untold damage to to the wildlife. Last year, the baby seagulls would actually, and the parents, the feet were blistering on the roofs because you'd got six weeks of sunlight that was, um, the heat was, well... We don't normally reach 30 degrees no. on the Isle of Man, do we? You know what I mean? So there was no respite for them. No. So the feet were blistering, the babies were jumping off. They hadn't um, got their feathering at the time, so some were injured. Hence why I've got about eight seagulls in the front garden. I'm hoping that some might have just had damaged feathers. So when when they grow them um, this year, some we, we still may um, have some that will fly off. I don't know whether it will or not, but we will hopefully have, instead of being in my front garden, our front garden, that they will eventually find somewhere as a sanctuary. Yeah. This, and you're always looking for helpers, Barbara. To Like, your garden is inundated with birds and you love it, but there's other people out there that might be able to reach out and help you as well by rehoming or, or you know, taking them into an aviary to create a normal, normal life before the release. At the moment, um, we're gearing up for the busy bird season, which is going to start in May. We need a lot, or we would welcome, rehabbers, and they're people that will come and feed the baby birds with us. So sometimes they can take the baby birds home if they feel confident enough to, and they can look after them there, and we will provide everything that's needed, guidance, the the food, the... um, utensils it's coming into a busy season again now barbara like you say so there's always scope for rehabbers people to come and help you volunteers they're very very important aren't they the whole the whole charity is based on volunteers nobody gets any expenses or 
any any funding at all. Everybody gives of their time, their vehicle. Mm -hmm. Everything is for nothing. Yeah. So the only the money we spend is either on veterinary mm -hmm. medicine uh, bills where the vets themselves do not charge for looking at the birds but once it needs x-rays doing or injections or blood taking or things like that then then we have to pay the bills um, because we can't expect them to work for nothing either um, and one such case just recently Barbara was the swan from Castletown they, they took a lot of veterinary aid and yourselves a lot of time has gone into saving Sally the swan yes Sally she she'd been on the side in Castletown for two days no water, no food. She'd actually lay there and when I picked her up, she was too weak to pick her head up, lift her head up. Oh, so I had to bring her home and feed her rehydration fluid, which with a swan meant a lamb's um, feeding tube down her throat. And I did that for five hours, you know, for up to five hours until I until she was rehydrated and it was marvellous to actually see her lift her head yeah. and then start to drink herself by herself. That's when you knew you turned the corner with that. She was on a heat mat, she had a heat lamp above her and um, she spent the night in there and we knew then we'd done it when the next day we went in the shed and she trashed it. <laughs> So, <laughs> but they don't make a miraculous recovery. It took all of your water to get her to come around. You know the the aid that you've provided her, because in time she will be released into the into the a normal natural environment, and they've got great navigational skills, so she will be able to develop back into normal life again. Yes, she's um, she was extremely um, underweight, and she's still underweight. We took her to the vets. About five days later, just to get her checked, once I realised she'd be able to uh, manage the yeah. trip to the vet without dying of shock. Mm -hmm. So and once we were at the vet, they took blood and tested that just to make sure there was no lead poisoning or anything else going on. Mm -hmm. And it was showing that she was slightly anemic. She was still dehydrated after nearly a week. And I was a bit worried because she she was drinking and I didn't want them to think that I wasn't looking after her properly. And they said, no, that when a bird has been as sick and as starved as Sally was, that it takes a good few weeks for them to recover yeah. because the kidneys have been damaged and other organs of the body. And so they have yeah. to recover as well. So why do you think, Barbara, that she got in such a low state? I know I believe you read articles on the internet saying that we shouldn't feed the birds, the ducks and swans such like with, with bread. You know, are people taking this advice and not actually providing food for the, you know, in the, in the inner harbours? Well, the problem, there's been a lot about the bread. Um, and like for hundreds of years, the swans and, and ducks have all been fed on the bread. But the problem really is stemmed from the ponds where the water is more stagnant and the bread would fall to the bottom if it's, if it's too much given and it becomes toxic. Right, I see. So, but in, in a free flowing river or, or beachside or harbourside like Castletown, it wouldn't be a problem to feed the ducks and, and the, the swans that are there then? No, it's, um, we, we particularly need them because 
Um, in Castletown, there's um, a, a male, and he is keeping everybody away from coming in the harbour. So they've had the rough weather out at sea. Sally was not allowed up the harbour. And also, I believe that um, the new defences that have been put up has had a detrimental effect on the water birds, not the ones that come up to us to be fed, but the ones wanting to come into the harbour. Um, I'm not sure. Um, yeah. it, it's difficult. You, you, it's difficult when you try to protect the housing and, and the people of, of Castletown, but it's quite often the case where some of the wildlife and other species do suffer. It's, it's human and nature trying to get the balance, isn't it? It's, it's never always easy. But uh, it, it's great to see that you do lots of other fundraising things for, for the Manx Wild, Wild Bird Aid, uh, Barbara, with the, the foreign coin collections and the, the stamp collections as well to raise money. Yes, we're doing very well with the stamps. We have a um, lovely young lady, Paige Havlin, and she was the, the lady that did the um, theses on the wallabies. She knows everything about wallabies, does Paige. And um, she's our person that collects all the stamps and the coins and sends them away. We also um, have a little group of um, fundraisers now. Before we we used to pay everything ourselves, pay for everything ourselves. But since we've become a charity, people have become... Um, we can take money before you would be too embarrassed to take anything when it was offered. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it was, it was it. like that. But so we've got a little group of fundraisers, and and we always welcome. If you don't like birds, people can can do other things for us. People knit little nests for the baby birds to actually um, nest in. You know, so and they're washable. Yeah. And yeah. it was Paige's mum who started Is that, it? and she's in Ireland, Goodness and she wow. was sending them over. Then we have our transporters, so all around the island, and we're especially short in the north of the island, we have three ladies up there who will actually go and get the birds, you know, because we put it on a group saying, you know, there's a bird in such and such a place, such and such a house, it's been boxed or it's, it's been got by a cat, could somebody pick it up and could they take it to either this place or that place? and um, then we will sort it out. So transporters will go, oh, I'm near there, or I'm working, or I can pick it up at this time. And um, that's how it all works, why we put it on a message, and then people respond to that message. And so there's no no phone calls. Everybody just has this Facebook messaging coming through <laughs> to them, and, and yeah. it's either yay or nay, yeah. and that's how it all works. And there's nothing ever left someday always if it ended up where there was no transporters then we would put it out to Facebook yeah. and we would ask is there anybody that could do this for us and there's always somebody so like I said nobody is paid they use their own vehicles they use their own petrol they use their own time we have police officers that do it when they finish work we've got IT managers we, you name it we've We've got from all different walks of life. But not only that, you've also got the veterinarians on side, the MSPCA. Everybody is working together. And, and with it being such a young charity, you, you are reaching out and spreading the word that you're here. 
the vets are all on side with. Everybody seems to know about us now. We use our own vet in particular, mainly because it's, well, she's down south and she has the equipment to be able to look at the baby birds if they've got anything that could be broken. Yeah. They will x-ray it with a dental x-ray. They will try the best not to to give a bird anaesthetic whilst they do the x-ray on the bird because anaesthetic with birds is not very good and even the healthiest bird can actually die under anaesthetic quite most of it actually we've found is when they're coming round oh. so if you can get a bird still enough they will x-ray and they they will see whether if there's a break there there is a break that they can fix or whether it's that one's not going to work at all and i'm very sorry but yeah, yeah they do everything they can they want to give the birds a chance as well so barbara out of all of the birds that you've had over the years what is your most favorite success story do you have one individual uh, there's no one individual there's lots of birds that come to mind um there was the very first gannet that we ever got and it wasn't me thankfully that had to look after it it would not feed it had to be forced well, when we say force-fed, crop-fed yeah. and crop-feeding a gannet that wants to swallow your hand at the same time <laughs> and trying to hold it between your knees, oh. you know, um, wasn't good. And then getting a pond big enough to bathe in, um, keeping it free of aspergillosis because we have to give them medication to stop aspergillosis developing because they get stressed. The gannet, I think... After a few months, um, she was really grateful to see the back of that one. Um, the <laughs> former, the former from last year, was the most gorgeous seabird I've ever seen as a baby. Cuddly, you just wanted to, well, you did, you cuddled it, and then you found out it projectile vomited fish oil at you. And it oh actually, <laughs> yes, we have on our YouTube um, pictures of this bird, you know, yeah. working its way up to actually throw it at you. So yes, there's there's all sorts. But yeah, we've 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 had lots of seabirds, lots of um, garden birds, corvids. And will they stay with you for long? You, do, do you keep them for long before you... A lot of the time you will release them where you've found them as well, which is lovely because they'll have their family home... What do you call it? Or they'll have their family groups where they've lifted off, like the magpies the other month, found in Ramsey, treated and brought back to Ramsey. Yeah, that, that's a great story. Why do you do that? You would have to take the birds... The adult birds always go back to where they come from because that's their territory. And you don't know what families they've got there. Um, you don't know whether, um, especially when it comes in the spring, whether it's a, a male bird that's feeding the female or the babies. But anyway, it's better to go back to actually where they come from, try and make them as safe as possible if it was a cat that got them, oh, you know, because we've, we've had a, f a few of them, but we've never had the same one back twice, thankfully. <laughs> Either the cat's always been successful on the second time or the bird has learned, I do not know which. 
And do you get many rare species to the island, Barbara? Because we have the standard, you know, the, the pigeons, the sea seabirds. You know, is there any any that have come to the island that maybe can't even set up home here? Have just come here in a storm or by chance? Um, no, we personally haven't had anything that shouldn't be indigenous or coming here for the winter. We've had a few, we had quite a few injured woodcocks. Um, the problem with the woodcocks at the end of last year, October, um, was after all the hot weather that everybody had, there was all, all of a sudden a sudden snap in October in Scandinavia they had to leave Scandinavia without being able to feed. By the time they got to our shores, they were starving, so they were really, really underweight. Plus, when they get here, they're shot. <laughs> so, you know, they've not a lot going for them. So, they, 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 obviously, it's shooting season for the woodcocks. It's also, they, a few were got by birds of prey. Mm -hmm. But the thing is about the woodcocks, they are now amber listed. In Scotland, they've asked the game people to, to not shoot the woodcocks to give them time to recover before they, you know, yeah, you start shooting again. Um, but some don't seem to have heard, you know, yeah. the, the news about that one. Do you find there is a lot more birds on the amber list, you know, becoming you know, critically endangered, running down in numbers? It's really strange because everybody talks about the goals. Um, how many goals? There's more goals. The goals need culling. And if they go to Manx BirdLife and find out the figures of the hundreds of thousands of goals there were to the thousands of goals there are now, it appears that there are more, but they were at sea before. They're not at sea now. And They're what's driving them away from the sea? Devereaux, who have been really good to us um, regarding the fish, um, they let us have fish for cost. They have to get their fish from the North Sea because there isn't the fish in the Irish Sea. And I asked her um, last year, would the Irish Sea not recover now because you've got all these? And she would it not spill over from the North Sea? And she said there was only about 10 years left of fishing in the North Sea and then there would be no herring left in the North Sea because of the masses, the mass, the way it's, the way the fish now, it's just massive trawlers that fish them out. It is a sorry state of affairs, but you're hearing it to the world over with lots of these wildlife charities and sanctuaries saying, you know, this is happening. It is on our doorstep. It's what humans are doing. So we have to be careful as custodians of the countryside to look after our wildlife. Well, Beach Buddies, I think it's um, first two days in, or a couple of days in May, they're having a um, environmental um, thing to try and make people aware of the plastic. People are now becoming more aware by not using the carrier bags you know, reusing carrier bags. Plastic is massive, but you wonder whether anything can be done. You're cleaning up the beaches, but the plastic is in the fish mm -hmm. and it's everywhere else. And it's in the, um, the... When you want to body scrub, the stuff that you're body scrubbing with is plastic, mm -hmm. little balls of plastic that they're saying don't use this, don't use that, because you're actually flushing that down and the birds actually, uh, birds, 
the the fish think it's eggs and they're food they're feeding on it and they're eating more plastic and then in turn if the the seabirds are fishing for the fish it becomes yeah. a problem in in the birds themselves the humans are actually humans are actually ingesting plastic now because they're finding in i think most fish actually there's plastic yeah. it's minute yeah. but it's still plastic it's still there and as the year's coming on, Barbara, what are the plans? New aviaries to be built in the garden or are we going to try and expand? We are looking for places to put new release aviaries. That is, when once we've hand-reared the babies, we have to give them somewhere so they start acclimatising, getting the strength in the wings, and they actually watch all the birds outside. So we put release aviaries in areas of for the birds of, of where the birds what type of birds are to be released like here where I live I live right under a rookery so it's sensible to release rooks here and the jackdaws and we have garden ones in various places people offer to have a release aviary in their garden and they are happy to sort of feed the birds and change the water and then after a few weeks, we open a hatch and the birds are released. And once they've stopped coming back to the aviary to be fed in the aviary, we close that hatch and then we can put in more birds for them to be released in that area. And those birds that have been released are still being supported by the person who's been looking after them in the wild until they, they don't need the human anymore. Yeah. It must be such a lovely feeling, Barbara, to have hand-reared little chick that's turned up on your doorstep in a box from somebody in the public to then go into the release aviaries, maybe not here in Castletown, but out in the countryside, and to see it take flight, you know, feathered and away to, to live a normal life. It's amazing, some of the things that we see. Um, also, when we release birds, we've been having them ringed just recently, so we can see the success rate because... You don't know when you've released these birds and you're already releasing into existing territory of birds, whether your birds are surviving or not, whether they are your birds, because you, you're actually not encouraging them to be eating out your hand. No, that's it. Um, you want them to be wild birds. The aim of the charity is to help sick, orphaned and injured birds and then release them back into the wild. So um, it doesn't always happen that way. We've, we've got the gulls that have got the injuries. And the thing is, with some of the birds, and you keep wondering whether you're going to get it better, whether its wing is going to get better or its legs going to improve. Um, by the time, in some cases, that you've realised it's not going to get better, it's very difficult to go and have the bird put to sleep and the bird's very happy playing ball in the garden and playing in its little pond and things. So, you know, that's that's the way it is. So in some cases, we, we, we'll get a little sanctuary going for gulls. There's a few places across and I'd like to um, do something similar. So yeah. we're always looking for anybody that could give us a little bit of um, land. We don't need much with what we do with the birds um, or, or premises or something like that. Um, everything is done from everybody's home. That's how we keep everything so it's 
all everything that's given is going to the birds, yeah. not to electricity or anything else. There's no overhead costs like that. It's aviary building, vet bills, food, and we have to. We even feel bad when we we take the money out to pay for leaflets or things because we think, oh, that's not for the birds, you know, but, you know. <laughs> but it is, it's gathering the support, isn't it? And like we say, it is a young charity, so it is all greatly appreciated. And, and someday when you go out the porch and you find someone's left a bag of bird seed, no name on it, and they're just happy to donate privately. It's great when you find the bags of bird seed. It's, um, it's a little bit off-putting when you find the birds that have been left on your step or on your fridge or wherever, you would be really surprised at what turns up, what's just there in a box. Or, But you would never turn them away, Barbara. You'd do your best to look after them. It's unbelievable, yes. Don't matter what time. Well, we try not to encourage people to phone us up at midnight, though it happens, or quarter to five in the morning when they found a pigeon in a bin. So, you oh, know, wow. so you could probably write a book on what you've uh, had come through the sanctuary doors over the last few years. And um, it's lovely to see children getting involved too. They want to come round and help you. Oh, yes. We have um, young Jake comes round on a Saturday morning. Jake is trying to save up for a mountain bike and um, he's happy to um, come along and power wash our paths and... Um, He's a little bit nervous of the birds at the moment, but I'm intending I'm going to get his confidence up in that as as the months go ahead with the birds. But yeah, he's only 13 and he comes along and he does his best for us. Like you say, Barbara, it's all voluntary work and yourself, the knowledge, you, you'll be learning every day from the various birds that come through. Every bird that comes through the door nearly is a challenge. It's You never know what you're going to get next. You don't know what species. You don't know what age. When they come as little jelly bean babies, which are tiny little bald ones, you don't know at that point often what it is. There's one in particular which I love doing when I do the talks, and it's bald all over, and it's got like... A Furby hairdo, and and I asked, I have to ask everybody, what is this bird? Can you tell what this what this little jelly bean is going to turn into? And um, nobody ever gets it, but it's a robin. They come with a mop of hair. That was Barbara Glassy Cole from the Manx Wild Bird Aid in Castletown. And it's a, a strange one, really, because you know you see lots of. At injured birds years ago when I was younger and nobody really bothered with them but now people seem to stop pick them up and try and find out somebody who can help them isn't there? It's really really wonderful they take in sick injured and orphaned wild birds and they actually return them back to the wild as well but she like she says it's all done by volunteers but they're really searching for more volunteers to get involved. Yeah, excellent. So wish them well with that one. But of course, uh, a lot of farmers busy uh, with the spring lambing and things at the moment, Kiri, isn't it? Yourselves? Oh, it is. It's a lovely spell of weather, Simon, mm. and getting on with the lambing. And, and also the ploughs are in and a lot of cultivation getting done down our way in Santon there. So it's uh, time of years on and it's always nice to see the new grass coming through too, isn't it? Yeah, and we always uh, remind people this time of year, they've just got to be a little bit careful, um, you know, with the, with the sheep lambing, haven't they, if you're out and about? 
Yeah, always be vigilant. Keep an eye out for the farmers because they're, they're very busy people and it's hard to get round on all of the stock, especially when the tendon to newborns and, and the calves will be coming now too. So uh, keep an eye out for the ones on their backs or, or uh, keep your dogs on the lead if you're out and about too. Yeah. Well, talking about sheep and the Isle of Man are looking for interested parties to take part in the World Sheep Shearing Championships, which will be held in July in France. I put it to James Radcliffe, one of the organisers of sheep shearing events on and off the Isle of Man, why they're looking for volunteers. Off the back of our successes in the last couple of World Championships, we the first World Championships we went to was in Ireland. Two years ago, it was in New Zealand. And this coming year, it's in France. We're hoping to send a team there. We've got space for anybody who's keen to represent the island with either machine or hand shears or wool handling. Now, you've mentioned um, the island trip, the New Zealand one. Uh, These are world level. Yes. Yeah. Um, We were perhaps most successful the first time out in, in Ireland. Uh, Dan Creer was very close to getting into the final in that and he was into the last uh, last semi-final we kind of struggled a little bit more in New Zealand um, just basically because of the level of shearing that is in New Zealand to be fair everything stepped up to be honest with you uh, be a good experience though oh it's an amazing experience yeah it because they're amongst the the top ones in the world, aren't they? The New Zealand's. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, we are playing on a on a, on a world st- world stage. Um, at in France, there's uh, just about forty countries involved, and we're well up there. It's a small island like the Isle of Man. We're well up there, sort of thing. Like we're not out outclassed, but we can get into the top fifteen or the top twenty, sort of thing. Like you know, out of 80-odd shearers, well, machine shearers, and kind of wool handling and kind of hand shearers. Yeah, we, we can we can compete on a level stage with, with any of them, to be honest. The biggest thing that you're going to get out of it is the experience. Um, especially in New Zealand, they took and they gave us three or four days training as well. Um, so you're entering a competition and the ones out there are sort of helping you to give yeah. you a few bit of oh, advice yeah. and everything. Yeah, they, that's, that's, that's the whole point of having the competition is to... Um, spread the word, kind of pass the knowledge out there as to kind of how we should be shearing sheep and how we should be presenting ourselves in, in the world as, as professionals, to be honest. Um, yeah, we compete at our own level. We might not be competing against um, the top championship shearers, but we are competing against Germany, who are the same level as us. We're competing against Austria, um, Mongolia, China, France, Spain. You know, little islands like ourselves. <laughs> yeah, well, to be fair, you know the Falkland Islands that they they're there, and yeah, the Falkland Islands are probably a little bit above us, to be honest. This sort of thing, like you know, um, you shouldn't be put off by thinking that oh, you're not good enough. You're going there to learn as much as anything, to be honest, and just to represent the islands. Sort of thing. Yeah, it's yeah. What what what's the what's the trip involved then? How, how many days? It kind of starts the second or third of July. Um, it involves a couple of days kind of training and different bits and pieces of immersion in to kind of like get your feet down sort of thing like and then the actual competitions are held on the Friday, Saturday and Sunday which is I think is the 4th, 5th and 6th of July And what, what about the, the wool um, wrapping side of it is that sort of judged as well? 
It is, yeah. yeah. Um, there's quite specific things that they judge you on. You're judged on, um, A, how you grade the fleece, how you present the fleece, and also how you um, handle the, the wool off the board, how you help the shearer. Uh, it's quite it's quite a technical thing and quite complicated, to be honest. Um, and when you see it done kind of at the top level, sort of thing, like, yeah, it's quite full on, to be honest. Like, yeah. Yeah, the top shears in the in the world would rely on a on a good sort of hand with them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 It can make a big difference both ways to the wool handler if you've got a good shearer, and from the shearer to make sure that you've got a good wool handler. Yeah. So no age limit or nothing. No. 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 Um, I think kind of the one of the American shearers is probably in his mid sixties, sort of thing, like the kind of American hand shears, sort of thing. Yeah, and still going strong at it. So if anyone wants to get involved in this or find out more information, James? Yeah, if they contact me in the first place, probably the easiest thing. Um, mobile number is 473-837. Um, and yeah, I can kind of, we can get sorted then as to kind of how they want to get there, when they want to get there, and yeah, if they need any more information. But yeah, it would be good, good experience. <laughs> Well, I didn't see your name on the list for potential candidates to head away to France for the sheep shearing. Not quite, but uh, it's, a, it's a great opportunity for young people. And especially if that's a profession that you want to take up and do, you can travel the world shearing sheep and actually make a, a few quid at it now as well. And it's a great skill to have, Simon, and, and it's pretty essential for animal husbandry. But good luck to the Isle of Man team there. Hopefully they'll get enough people to go over to France. Yeah, and, and as James said, you know, you, you don't need to eat too professional maybe you're not long started at it but you think it's a potential for you because as he said there's so much help and advice on hand and the experience well you can never replace oh absolutely and and like you say that the older ones uh, some of the world class shearers they're there to bring on the young ones and encourage them and it's, it's part of their way of life to same with anything bring up the young ones and keep it going for the future generations yeah and uh, lovely to hear Barbara talking about that uh, charity because you know we always seen in the past uh, you know and we mentioned it that you know p- people used to just sort of leave the animals sadly on the sides of the road and things and injured but now there seems to be a lot of people the hedgehog charities and of course barbara with the the bird charity of taking in the birds it is really great and if you can't actually happen to help hands-on with the birds or but you still want to get involved you know they do foreign coin collections stamp collections all these little things to help raise money so they can feed the birds and and you know give them the care that they need and they've got a wonderful talking parrot there kiki who dances it's just a great little organization and they're more than happy for you to pop along and have a look and see what you can do to help kiki or kiri <laughs> <laughs> and tim baker uh, uh, chairman of Isle of Man Meats as well as Aaron Michael MHK uh, with that brilliant news about the deal that they've struck up uh, across in the UK um, to as an outlet oh, uh, for uh, the Isle of Man Meats and hopefully get that um, throughput through the meat plant that the farmers uh, have been waiting for for quite a while now. This is it. It's an opportunity there and hopefully it will work and uh, bring some positivity back into the agricultural industry here on the Isle of Man. Indeed. All right, that's it for this week's Countryside. We're back next week with another edition for you. So from me, Simon Clark. And me, Kiri Kermode. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.